has done great things for us, and because he has, we are filled with joy. Joy overflow into your hearts and overflow into a life as you, uh, with God's help, go to war. Uh, We're walking our way, Pastor Krieger mentioned this before, we're walking our way through the Gospel of Mark pretty slowly, but one thing maybe you've noticed is that Mark himself does not move slowly. Today we're only going to get to the 13th verse of Mark chapter 1, and we're already at the temptation of Jesus. Mark, I'll put it this way, Mark is very much interested in the deeds of Jesus. He's interested in what Jesus does. That's not to say he's interested, not interested in what Jesus says. He does t- share with us, and we'll get to those later on in the year, he does teach us about what Jesus teaches. But he's more interested in the deeds, the works, the miracles. And that's why you can maybe think of the Gospel of Mark as a little bit as an action adventure, showing the might and majesty and the works and the power of Jesus. And so today we're running along. We're running along with Mark. We're only going to cover two verses today. Um, that should be plenty. Two verses from Mark chapter 1 where, where we follow Mark right, this is one of Mark's favorite words, immediately. At once, right away, for baptism at once. I won't read any more because otherwise I'd give you the whole text. Let's read from Mark chapter 1. It's the gospel, so please stand. Please stand and please listen to the words about our Savior Jesus. At once, one of Mark's favorite words, the Spirit sent him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. You maybe thought to yourself, or maybe you haven't yet, but I'm going to make you think about it here in just a minute. You maybe thought to yourself that this is a little bit of a strange Advent reading. We don't normally think about the temptation of Jesus. We don't normally read this reading. In fact, this is maybe the first time I've ever done it, maybe the first time it's ever happened to you, where we talk about the temptation of Jesus during Advent. It's usually the reading that we read on the first Sunday of Lent. And so this sermon, this text, is a little bit of a weird one, a little bit of a strange one, a little one, a little bit that's out of sorts. I think beyond the weirdness of the church year where we're preaching on temptation at a time when we don't normally preach on temptation, I think there's something else that's weird about this too. And it's this, that Christmas is not time for war. We, we think about, we sing about peace on earth, goodwill to men. We don't think about war and spiritual warfare and Jesus going to war. We don't think about our own war against the devil and his temptations. That's for reformation. That's for end times. That's for, for the, the season of Pentecost. We think about it then, but not now. It's kind of a weird sermon that I'm preaching today, and, and I'll be honest, I don't think the devil wants me to preach it. Maybe you don't even want me to preach it, but I have to because I picked it. 
But, but I have to for another reason as well. I have to preach this sermon because it, it helps us. Here's the first fill-in. It, it, it uncovers the work of the devil. It, it uncovers who he is. It uncovers who, what he does. It uncovers everything about the devil. There's a reason that we have to talk about this because this is war. I'll say it that way. One of the things that we've done with Christmas, and I like that we've done this with Christmas, is that we've made it very romantic. We've, we've romanticized the Christmas service. We turn down the lights. We light candles. We sing Silent Night. It's, it's a quiet, peaceful, romantic night. Even when the cattle are lowing in the stable, not even baby Jesus cries. It's just this beautiful, serene moment. But do you think it really was? Do you, do you think it really was this dark night sky, this quiet little baby Jesus who didn't even make a whimper even when the cattle were lowing? I don't think so. I wonder what the conversation between Mary and Joseph was like. I wonder what arguments they had on the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Nine months pregnant, traveling 75 miles south to the town where Caesar Augustus told them to go. I wonder what that was like. And I'm not a woman, I've never given birth, but I wonder what it was like to give birth without any pain medication in the middle of a stable. In the middle of what we think was a dark winter night. No clean place to clean yourself up or the baby up, just stinky cows and sheep. Not quite so beautiful. And the first people who came to give Jesus worship and praise were shepherds who were out in the fields nearby, dirty shepherds, because they're taking care of sheep, not the cleaned up people who come to church today. See, if, if we pull back the veil on Christmas, it's not quite as beautiful as I think we like to make it seem. And, and if we pull back the veil even more, we see that something else is happening. This is war. If you pull back the veil at the, at the Christmas story and you think about what's actually happening, what God is doing when Jesus comes to earth, when God inter invades humanity by taking on flesh, think about what's happening. There's a dragon at the door of the stable. Seven horns, ten crowns. And as soon as she gives birth, that dragon wants to devour the child. Talking about Revelation. The ancient dragon, the devil, is after the Son of God. First it's Herod. Then it's Caiaphas. Then it's the Pharisees. Then it's the Jews. Then it's Judas. Then it's the crowds who want to throw him off, off the cliff. Then it's his hometown who won't even hear him preach. This is war. If you pull back the veil, what we see at Christmas is war. God and man, think about how the devil must have graded. Pastor Krieger talked about the gospel of the angels. Glory to God in the highest heaven. But did you know how, how, how terrible that law was to the devil? God has come, and you're going down. Can you imagine how his ears must have grated like, like fingers on a chalkboard to hear that song? Now everybody's shivering. Right? This is war. 
the great dragon seeking after Jesus. We have to see that what's happening here at Christmas is Jesus is going to war with the devil. And Mark wants us to see that because what does he say? At once, right after he's baptized, right after the Spirit's on him, right after he's anointed for his work, at once Jesus is sent. He's sent to do war, to be tempted in the desert. And you have to know, dear people of God, that this devil, this dragon, this Leviathan is not just after Jesus. Because when he couldn't get Jesus, he now goes after you. And that's really the second reason the devil doesn't want me to preach this sermon. That's really the second reason I have to preach this sermon. I have to preach this sermon because I'm trying to get the clicker to work. Oh, Jacob, just take over. I'm going to tell you when to click it. Because it uncovers his ways. I have a growing concern in my heart that as a culture, and maybe even we as a church, we don't take the devil and his temptations as seriously as we should. Just, just think about with me for a minute how we picture the devil. He's a jokester. He's a prankster. He's, he's a little guy with red, with, he's a little guy with red, with red horns and a red suit and a tail. He's almost like a little prankster. He's, he's kind of devious and, and maybe even we, people would call him funny. Cute, Laura said. But that's what he's like. That's what we say anyway. And so we get out a magic eight ball and we shake it because it's like a little game to ask somebody else for advice about the future. We can pick up a Ouija board at Target and play it. It's just a game after all. Pull out your tarot cards and ask cards and ask somebody else to tell you the future. It's just a silly little thing that people play. I don't really believe in it, but let's ask somebody else to tell their future. And did you know that now you can join the local Satanist club at your local grade school? It's happening in California. Google it. You'll see. I hope you can tell by my sarcasm and my silliness that I'm not at all suggesting that you should go to any of these places for advice or counsel from God. If you want to know something, pray about it. Don't ask the eight ball or the tarot cards or the Ouija board. Then you're messing with someone you shouldn't mess with. But I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't already know, right? I think you all kind of already kind of knew that we shouldn't mess with those kind of things. The devil is not a prankster. But I wonder sometimes if he gets at us by helping us to think that people are the problem. That getting us to think that they, whoever they are, are the enemy. That they're the problem, that they're the ones who are up to no good. Let me show you one of the ways that he does it. And this isn't something I came up with. I read it from John Kleinig. He explains, he lays it out like this. He says, here's one thing that the devil does so that people become the enemy. First, he gets them to do something against you. He gets them to say something. He gets them to do something. He gets them to forget something. 
He, he gets them to sin against you in some way. Some, it might be small and insignificant. It might be big and traumatic. He gets them to do something against you. And, and the more power, authority, position that this person have a pastor, a teacher, a counselor, a, a parent, the more authority, power they have in your life, the better. Because if they sin against you, now he's, he's got a beginning at you. First, they sin against you, and then, two, you, you brood on it. It's a little bit like a tea bag and a glass of hot water. You sit on it, you think about it, you stew on it, and you think about it. And the more you think about it, the bigger it gets. And the bigger it gets, the more justified you are, and the more wrong they are. The more right you are, and the more wrong they are, and you just get the ang- that's three, you get angry and bitter and frustrated. And then you, you can't come to church and listen because they're there. Th- then you can't hear and meditate on God's word because you're always thinking about how you've been wronged by them. You can't pray, you can't devote, you can't do devotions, you can't come to church. At least in benefit, it becomes very, very difficult to be part of what we're doing here because, well, because of what happened. And so the devil puts a wedge not just between people, but between you and God's word and separates you from the one thing that will give you life. Right? This is why the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, he says, don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't do that. We, dear people of God, we know, Jacob, go to the next slide. We, we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. Our, our battle, this is what Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. Yes, people wound us and yes, people hurt us, but our war is not against them. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the authorities, uh, against the powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a spiritual thing, not a personal thing. Take a deep breath. I want to go to the zoo with you. Go to the slide, Jacob. This is a happier slide. I really like the zoo. I haven't been for a while. I feel like it's time to go back to the zoo. I got little people in my house again. I I need to go back to the zoo. The old people like it too. And, And the thing I like about the zoo are the big scary animals because they're behind gates and cages. But I like them because of their power. You know, I, I like the lion because of the power of his roar that, I don't know, you can be miles away. <laughs> I don't care if he's pacing, boring. But if he's roaring, I got to get to that place. And I, I love the stately swing of the elephant's trunk. You know, they're, they're, they're just this proud animal. And what about the hippo? They seem kind of lazy, but they're so powerful and mighty. But you know, the thing that everybody knows about the zoo is that you can't take these animals home and make them your pets. You, you would never go into the lion's pet and say, come here, little kitty, 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 and try to put them on a leash and bring them home. You, you wouldn't go into the hippo pen and try to put a ring through its nose and lead it along. I hope by now you're catching on to the idea that I'm not at all interested in talking to you about the zoo. 
What I'm trying to help you do is I'm trying to do for you and with you what God did for Job in Job chapter 41. Job, God talks to Job in chapter 41 about a Leviathan. Jacob, this is what he says. Can you go ahead? Can you pull in? He's asking Job these questions about this beast that people don't know exactly what it is. It's called Leviathan. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Can you make a pet of it like a bird? Or, or put it on a leash so a little girl can play with it? See, see, what God is doing for Job, he's, he's not taking Job to the zoo and saying, Job, I want you to look at this amazing beast. He's not doing zoology with Job, but what God is doing for Job is he's helping Job to see the enemy, capital E. The great dragon, the great beast, Leviathan, I'm talking about the devil in case you haven't caught on. He's talking about the power and might of the devil, and he's talking about the weakness and incapacity of Job. Did you catch the questions? Can you, can you, can you, can you, Job? In other words, he's saying, this enemy is mighty, and Job, you are puny and weak. You can't play with this beast, and you dare not. And what God does when he shows the power of the enemy and the weakness of Job, he helps Job see that the devil is God's devil. You can put that up there, Jacob. The devil is God's devil. In other words, the devil always serves God's purpose and will. The devil is God's devil. I could put it vulgarly, but there are children here, so I won't. God owns the devil. And so when the devil leads us to hatred, bitterness, anger, any sin, then God has us right where he wants us. No, listen carefully. God does not want to leave us in bitterness, anger, and hatred. But God does want to break us. He does want to drive from us any sort of self-reliance, self-righteousness, or self-confidence. He wants us to see that we dare not, and we should not have, tried to play with Leviathan like a little girl plays with the puppy. Because when he brings us there, and when he breaks us, and shows us, you are nothing and you have Nothing. When he makes us beggars, then he can show us the one who does lead around Leviathan on a leash like a little girl plays with a puppy. Then he can show us the one who puts a ring in the beast's nose and tells it where to go. Then he can show us the one who, whose head he crushed under his feet. Then he can show us the one who throws that ancient dragon, the devil, from heaven into the prison he prepared for from the beginning of the world. And that's what Mark means to show us. At once, the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. There was no other purpose for Jesus to go there except for temptation 
And Mark, you, you guys, you know, many of you know the rest of the stories. Matthew spends 12, 11 verses. Luke spends 13 verses. They're covering the story because it's an important story. But Mark kind of shrugs and says, well, it's Jesus. What do you expect? Jesus went out to the devil and, did, and was tempted by the devil and ah, he did it. This is such an insignificant moment to Mark because to, to Mark, it's Jesus is powerful and mighty and, and by his power, by the power of God's word, he threw down the devil. Of course Jesus beat him, Mark wants to say. Of course Jesus overcame. Of course he beat the devil. That's what Jesus came to do. The devil is not just God's devil, but the devil is Jesus' devil. Jesus owns him. Go through the rest of Jesus' ministry. And again and again and again, Jesus proves the devil can do his worst. But Jesus always wins. The devil tries to turn and twist things, and Jesus always carries out his work. Herod says, I'm going to kill all the babies in Jerusalem. Try to get Jesus too. God says, oh yeah? Out of Egypt I called my son. He, he, he sends people to throw Jesus off the cliff and Jesus says, oh yeah? Part those seas. Caiaphas riles up the crowd to have Jesus crucified. And Jesus said, oh yeah, take that devil. Right, again and again and again. And Jesus, Judas betrays him into the hands of sinner. And, and Jesus says, oh yeah, I'll take that cross. I'll beat your tomb and I'll sit at God's right hand. He plays with the devil. He doesn't really play with the devil because he's the devil's Lord. But he is so in charge of the devil that he takes your sins away and reconciles you with God. The devil is God's devil. He is Jesus' devil. And nothing he can do against you will succeed. Because Jesus is his Lord. Not because he honors him as such, but because Jesus is Lord of all. And especially the devil is under his feet. So what do we say? What do we say when the devil comes to us? What do we do when the devil accuses us of our sin and we feel it residing in our hearts? And we feel guilt and shame pressing down on us and we feel we get to the place where Job was where you're nothing. What do we say? What do we do? What do we say when the devil would tempt us and lead us into sin like he did to Jesus in the wilderness? What do we do? Well, Jacob, there is one little word. We sing about it in a mighty fortress. There's one little word that can fell him. And I, and I kind of want to know what it is, don't you? If, if there, what is this one little word that can fell Jesus? Some people say, Jacob, just follow along. We're going to go quickly, guys, because so, we're getting to the end. Some people say it's, it is written. Now you're saying, first of all, you're saying that's not one little word. In the Greek, it is one little word. 
That's what Jesus said to the devil. Every time the devil came to him, you look at the other accounts, it is written, it is written, it is written. It's a powerful little word that sent the devil packing each time he came at Jesus. And I don't want to undermine or minimize this little word from Jesus. Because it is a powerful word for us. When the devil comes at you and would lead you into sin, to lead you away from God's path, the simple response is, it is written. The devil must flee before the word of God. But I don't think that's what it is. Some people say it's, it's, it is finished. Could it be that? Again, you're probably saying that's not one little word, but it is one little word. It's the little word that to tell us die that Jesus said on the cross. And, and I really want to maximize this word and build it up in your hearts because it is this little word, this it is finished word that assures us that, that all our guilt and all our shame and all our, our, all our sin is gone and forgiven, that all, all of it's paid for by Jesus on the cross. So when the devil throws your sins in your face, tell him this, it is finished. Not by me, but by him. You could say that. Some people say the little word is liar. When the devil comes to you and would say, tell you about anything, whether it's guilt or shame, because that's a lie, or whether it's this is good for you, that's a lie. It's, it's all a lie. The devil deals in lies. That's who he is. He's the father of lies. You could tell him that. It'd be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? Just to call him who he is, you liar, get out of here, get behind me, Satan. But I'm not sure that's what it is either. And I'm not sure exactly what Martin Luther had in his mind when he wrote that little line, one little word can fell him. But there is one word, beyond it is written, it is finished, and liar, that, that sends shivers down the devil's spine and sends him running the corner like a cockroach, afraid of getting smashed. That word is Jesus. Amen? Now the God of peace grant you peace and victory through his son Jesus. God be with you. Amen.